0: Something been curious about this broadcast.
1: T minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. This is
2: TGP Nominal. Commence episode now. All systems remain nominal, 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 nominal. nominal.
3: Hello everybody and welcome to TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. Yes, it's that time of the month again where we talk spacey stuff and it wouldn't be the same without my co-host who I'm going to have to fade in. How you doing, John?
4: I'm getting ready for the eclipse. Da-da-da-da-da.
3: My luck, it'll be, you know, completely overcast and
4: rainy and stormy and all that.
3: Yeah, well, such as the luck of an astronomer, to be honest.
4: <laughs> it's going to be like, why? Well, I don't live in England or the American Northwest. You know, it's supposed to be nice and sunny in August.
3: <laughs> well, it's it's nice and sunny here till the kids break up for school holidays. And then the day they go back to school, then the sun comes out again. My kids go back to school
4: the day of the eclipse.
3: But I'm sure the schools are going to lay something on.
4: I make no guarantees on that one. I'll send them in with each with a pair of the Eclipse glasses that I got, but
3: it is one uh, once in 99 years. I mean, come on. <laughs>
4: Well but in fairness we're getting another one in two thousand twenty four and that's even gonna be better from our perspective from well from my perspective where I'm at. Cause right now we're in the eightieth percentile for this eclipse, we're gonna be the ninetieth for the next one.
3: Yeah, we get another partial one in two thousand twenty-six, so and then we don't get another one till about two thousand and sixty something, I think. I can't remember Dude. what it was now. <laughs> I think we get a partial somewhere in two
4: thousand forties, I think. I probably looked at that and said, I'll probably be dead by then. I'm not going to bother looking.
3: The other half said something similar. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Now, before we we go on, I'd just like to say congratulations to the guys at Field of Force Day. They've recently been attending the London Film and Comic-Con at Olympia. And that's one of the biggest geek fests in the UK. And they took along their big action figure box <laughs> um, and merchandise and all that kind of stuff and they actually managed to raise £2, £2,237.96 and Nice! <laughs> Which is quite a good bit of uh, fundraising for the uh, Field of Force Day events. So uh, good work by all the team there because they managed to make £500 more than last year's event. Nice, always good. Yeah, I bet the guys are feeling really great about that. So what else is n- new with you, John, apart from waiting for the eclipse?
4: Um, the eclipse. That's about-, <laughs> <laughs> that's about the only thing that's dominating stuff over here lately. Well, stuff that's worth talking about anyway. Mm-hmm. There are lots of things that are happening over here that I couldn't give a rat's sure end about Hello Politics. Mm-hmm. I haven't even had a chance, I'm getting there, but I haven't even had a chance yet to start on my Saturn rocket. Really? I
3: know wow. I know I'll get there mind you you I thought you were gonna come back with for well, you haven't got far with your 3d printer either but
4: <laughs> okay that well do you have all the parts for it?
3: I do now have all the parts oh, for it so what's your problem time
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, that that's that I completely get my studio's done that's mm. at least well almost done I just have to do the carpet. There's not a whole hell of a lot going else, going else, going on, else, going on, going, yeah.
3: Yeah, take those words and arrange them in the order that you see fit, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Audio jigsaw puzzle, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, this is the stupid portion of our show. (laughs) Right, shall we get this show on the road, John? Oh, sure. Okay. So let's go to a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk all things space related. Space. The final frontier. Final because it wants to kill us. Sometimes we forget that start taking it all for granted
1: the suits the ships the little bubbles of safety as they protect us from the void but the
2: void is always waiting international podcast day is september 30th and you can help spread the word you may be asking what can i do to get involved it's pretty simple Head over to internationalpodcastday.com and check the suggestions. Then, use hashtag internationalpodcastday to join the conversation. You can reach out and connect with other podcasters, listeners, and your favorite podcast hosts. Remember September 30th, International Podcast Day, a day-long celebration of the power of podcasts. This is TGP Nominal.
3: Do you remember the company Copenhagen Suborbitals?
4: I do. That's the one that they're focusing mostly on, the smaller rockets.
3: Yeah, they're pretty much building in, in a, um, a little workshop. They're part-time rocketeers, should we call them. It's a DIY project, basically, and they intend to, to send somebody into space. I don't know what the timescale is on that, but they are quite small rockets at the moment. But they have just announced that they will be launching their Nexo-2 rocket on August the 26th um weather permitting <laughs> With August the twenty seventh for a backup, so uh, hopefully they're going to be broadcasting that. So it'd be interesting to see how that goes because I've been seeing them testing their um, the parachute system and all that kind of stuff recently. <laughs> it's very interesting project uh, the Copenhagen suborbitals. They launch from a floating platform in in the middle of the sea. As I say, these guys all have daytime jobs. They, they do this at the weekend. It's, it's almost like the, you know the people that restore old cars and. They that kind of stuff for the weekends sure it's like I, I,
4: that i used to be part of a uh, independent movie group that all their stuff was done on weekends
3: Mm-hmm. so this is a similar thing but they build rockets how fantastic is that hey
4: I, excuse me i used to make movies
3: on weekends how fantastic is that that too <laughs> <laughs> Building rockets as your hobby in the, at, at the weekends, and I mean, I know you can get rocket kits from your model stores and all that kind of stuff, but these uh, not the are same thing. a lot bigger than those, but not quite as big as a Falcon Nine or something, you know. Well, <laughs> but, no, but obviously they're they're infinitely more
4: complicated than just throwing a couple of Estes rockets, throwing in a what uh, one of those igniter pieces and hitting a button.
3: I mean, these guys mean business, and there's a lot of money they throw into it as well, especially if something fails. That's a lot of money when it's coming out of your own pocket, as it were. Every time they get to a next stage uh, in building something, I always put a post on Facebook about it, because I just love it. It's not an everyday thing for somebody to do, and to do it in the equivalent of building it in a shed and... uh, launching these rockets. It's fantastic. And, uh, yeah, I take my hat off to them. They're really great guys. It'd be good to get them on the show, actually, if we could, to, yeah. talk, to talk about it. I mean, there won't be a language barrier thing, because most, most people in Scandinavia, they all speak perfect English, better than I do, actually. <laughs> so
4: yeah, you, you talk more American than anything else.
3: This is true.
4: Yeah, you do. <laughs> I knew you'd admit that.
3: <laughs> this is true. I'm, I'm not very... Um, english in many respects okay yeah i've got a a british accent i do take on a lot of uh, americanisms and um i hate tea
4: (laughs) whoa that's treasonous dude you better get out of the country really quickly (laughs) really
3: yeah i do not like tea see that i guess that's
4: weird because i well it depends on the kind i but i i actually like tea
3: I I must admit, I I don't mind some of these infusions. Yeah. Like peppermint infusion or lemon and ginger or...
4: Although I will admit, being the Star Trek geek that I am, I do not like Earl Grey. (laughs) (laughs) Deal with
3: it. You're more of a Kirk than a Picard then, yeah? Ha!
4: No. (laughs) (laughs) If if I was a Kirk, then I'd be making out with every good-looking alien and my wife wouldn't appreciate that. (laughs) So... (laughs) Can't be a Kirk, man. I'm, if I'm going to be any of them, I'd rather be Ben Sisko because he just kicked ass. You hit me, G- Picard never hit me. <laughs> I'm not Picard. <laughs> yeah. You tell him. <laughs> People who don't watch Star Trek are probably like, what? He's then talking about?
3: Oh well. I was I was kind of go down the line of he was kind of like a an intergalactic John Shaft. <laughs> But anyway, what were we talking about? Yeah, we were just talking about how how we got <laughs> yes. from that from, from from Copenhagen suborbitals. I have no idea. But uh <laughs> yeah.
4: Did you see that link? I think it was to the Washington Post, where I guess they use Google Maps or Google Earth to show the path of the eclipse as it goes through the country. And all you have to do is just scroll down. And as you scroll down, it'll take you from uh, Oregon all the way through and it'll tell you about the various cities that it's going to reach along the way.
3: I haven't actually seen that.
4: Oh, it's so cool. I got to send that one to you. Uh, but I mean, they even got so detailed that they show like the length of the shadow on Earth as it progresses. So you can see that as it's up near Oregon, the shadow's really long and stretched out, and then as it as it is about to go off the coast of South Carolina, it's now like a perfect circle. They even got that detailed as to how long the shadow's going to be extended. It's it's a really cool sight. I'll have to send the link to you, and all you do is you just scroll down in your mouse, and it will just go along the entire path.
3: That's definitely something that uh, the listeners need to see, especially if... You're going to be in the line of, uh, I was going to say scrimmage there. I don't know why I was going to say that. We are not talking football. No, um,
4: oh, and if we were, I'd hang up on you.
3: <laughs> oh, well. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it's, it, if, if you're in the, the line of where the eclipse is going to hit, as it were, yeah. It's it, it sounds like you definitely need to see.
4: I got my sunglasses. Well, my sunglasses, Sun- my solar glasses. because yeah. Sunglasses aren't going to protect uh-uh. me from anything.
3: <laughs> I don't. I don't care how cool you look in them. Yeah, it's not no, going to no, work. No.
4: <laughs> That's the one thing. Anybody who's going to be doing this, be careful where you get your glasses. Apparently, there have been a flood of fake ones going out there. They might work. They probably won't. And you don't want to risk your eyesight on it. Chances are, if the price is too good to be true, you know what that phrase is. Yeah. You don't want to take your chances on that one. So there are a number of sites that uh, NASA recommends and a bunch of other places. Uh, The big ones... Are American Paper Optics, which would be eclipseglasses.com. That's where I got mine. They come in a whole bunch of of different options and different varieties. They've also got, you know, like if you want more durable ones, they've got rigid plastic ones. I just grabbed a stack of 25 paper ones for like 20 bucks. Mm -hmm. With Bill Nye, might have Bill Nye on it. Just make sure you get your sunglasses from reputable areas and don't go for cheap just because it's cheap, because that would be a
3: bad thing. I'd imagine if you've got local astronomy clubs or uh, astronomy gear retailers, you know, uh, telescope retailers, they will probably have something there as well. And if they don't, they can probably point you in the right direction. That's what they're there for. But we can't stress that enough. We've mentioned it before when we were talking to Noah. Safety is everything.
4: Yeah, it's not like you know. if your eyes get burned out from the sun, it's not like you can really get those back again. No. Just just ask our friend Richard Vobes about how the problems with his one eye turned out. Yeah, he doesn't have an eye there now.
3: I mean, I was quite lucky (laughs) with the uh, problem I had with my eye. That was my own stupid fault, and I was very lucky with it. I managed to get a paper cut on my eye. How? No, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. <laughs> I'll just, just to say, I just fell asleep reading a book. <laughs> Holy cow. You
4: just gave me the heebie-jeebies. But, That's just... Ugh. Yeah. It's like I can get a cut on my arm or my, any other part of my body, and I'm okay with it because I know it'll heal and everything's good. But for some reason, just a cut on my eye freaks me out. That's why I haven't been able to get LASIK. It's just the thought of them slicing my eye open, I can't do it. Mhm. And to hear that you got a paper cut on your eye.
3: Yeah, it was uh, it wasn't fun.
4: <laughs> no, that that's like stuff of nightmares almost.
3: And when I went into the, uh, the emergency room about it, or the doctor that I went to see, he actually made a joke about it by saying, yeah, I told you reading that stuff will make you go blind.
4: Uh, okay, that's actually funny. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give him credit for that one. Okay, but hey, rolling it back to the eclipse, even if you're not going to be close to the path of it, you can still help NASA with it because there's a lot of information that they need and they're asking us to help
5: with it. When the Earth goes dark for a few minutes during a total solar eclipse, animals, plants and environmental conditions react. In the path of the eclipse, temperatures and clouds can change quickly. But exactly how they change is a question NASA scientists are trying to answer. If you'll be in North America during the August 21st eclipse, you can help NASA collect data for a citizen science project that's looking at how much cooler the Earth gets during the eclipse by measuring air temperature and clouds. How can you help? First, download the free Globe Observer app onto your smartphone or tablet. Second, get a thermometer to measure air temperature. See the website or app to see the suggestions of types you can get. The app will walk you through how and when to make your scientific observations. Your data will go into the GLOBE programs database where it's accessible to students and scientists from all over the world. Scientists can use this data to study how our solar powered planet is affected by the special celestial event. You can collect data in many locations. The path of totality is roughly 70 miles wide and stretches across the continental United States from Oregon to South Carolina. Outside of the path, the rest of the continental US and other areas will see a partial eclipse where you can still collect data. We are looking forward to your observations. Download the app, create an account and be ready to take part on August 21st.
3: Firstly, I wasn't expecting that accent. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know... (laughs) Uh, and secondly, yeah, that will be quite interesting to see d- how it does differ across the country with the temperature. Mm.
4: What I've been reading, it can drop anywhere up to 15 degrees, which, that's substantial.
3: It certainly is.
4: Um, what would that be, Celsius? Uh, I don't know. I know it's like five-ninths or something like that.
3: let
1: Google!
3: Yeah, I'm, well, I've just gone onto an app, actually, that I've got on <laughs> <laughs> so 15 degrees celsius is like 59 fahrenheit so what
4: no 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 wait, wait. No, no no we don't want that but yes that would be substantial no hmm. no <laughs> <laughs> i'm if i'm talking about if it's going to drop 15 degrees fahrenheit
3: yeah all right okay let's do it the other way around that's easily done yeah minus 9.4 reoccurring isn't it roughly 10 degrees celsius cooler here yeah. For, at least for those people who are
4: in the path of totality.
3: Yeah, it certainly will be interesting to, to see, because you've got obviously areas in that tunnel of where the eclipse is going, that you, you're going to have a quite a substantial difference across the country, aren't you, depending on where you are. I'm just trying to think, where, whereabouts in the, in where that's going would be a lot cooler as it is without... Oh... That's hard to say because it starts in the
4: Pacific Northwest, but that's traditionally... That's kind of like England. It gets very warm there even in the winter. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it goes across to South Carolina, which is in the American South, so probably across the Dakota area. I think it goes through South Dakota. That'd be... still so, I mean, it's all relative because it's still summertime.
3: Mm-hmm. That's the thing, you see. Um, the, the one we had in 99 was in the summer, so that made a lot of difference to what you felt, whereas the one we had in 2015 was in March. So the weather's not fantastic anyway in March, so you didn't actually feel it as much. Oh, come on. There we go. So, yeah, it
4: is the Washington Post. Um got to kind of look for it. It's not the first thing to come up on a search when you look for Washington Post and Eclipse. So let's see, Idaho, it does hit a little bit of Montana, not much. The most extreme southwest part of Montana it hits. Idaho is going to be in the path. Uh, Casper, Wyoming. So you can even use this thing to plan which highways will get in the path of totality. And you can just sit on one of those highways.
3: Yeah. Uh, I'd imagine that's going to be quite busy. Though. <laughs> well,
4: yeah, but we're talking about across the country, so there's 3,000 miles of road there that you could hit. Yeah, but if everybody gets the same idea. <laughs> uh, yeah, well. Okay, yeah, there are some areas that, like, in one part, it goes over an American Indian Reservation. Okay, yeah, you can't just waltz onto that. Mm-hmm. Granted, the Wind River Indian Reservation up in South Dakota is almost entirely going to be in the shadow.
3: It'd be interesting to hear a Native American take on the eclipse, because the original people, they tend to use the sun, the moon, the stars, and everything else is, is all part of the culture.
4: So let's see, according to this, totality will last the longest over the Shawnee National Forest in Kentucky which is going to be 2 minutes 44 seconds. The city with the longest duration will be Hopkinsville, Kentucky with 2 minutes 40 seconds. Nashville will be in the path. Now, it's like off to one of the sides, so it's probably only going to be maybe like a minute worth, but all of Nashville, Tennessee, is there. it's in the path. That's kind of cool. Yeah. They'll be having fun down there. Then all of Clemson, South Carolina, Columbia, South Carolina, and it's going to end at South Carolina's Cape Romaine National Wildlife Refuge. And at that point, it goes off into the ocean.
3: Yeah, that's where we have our biggest downfall. <laughs> when they hit here, it's like, okay, we've got it for a very small time before it hits the ocean.
4: <laughs> <laughs> but Yeah, oh, oh, I didn't even notice that. When you're scrolling down the map, right above that little mini-map of, of the U.S., it also gives the approximate time that it's going to happen there.
3: That's handy. You could say,
4: oh, well, at two t- roughly 220, it'll be over Carbondale, Illinois. Carbon- it's funny. Carbondale, Illinois, bills itself as the Eclipse Crossroads because it will be in the path of totality for both 2017 and 2024 eclipses.
3: Oh, so they're making a big thing out. Oh,
4: yeah. <laughs> Make the most oh, of it. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go if you want to see exactly where it goes over they even got so detailed with this that they're showing that the st louis you've seen the the st louis arch yep yeah it is just barely outside the path of totality we're talking by like half a mile that's how detailed they
3: got this map wow yeah that's pretty detailed even if you're not going to get the experience, it'll be still good to look at to just uh, as an astronomer to to see how it's going to travel. Yeah, that's that's cool. <laughs> I've got you saying cool. I am victorious. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ever
4: mock me for it, sir, because I've caught you. <laughs> <laughs>
3: there's a company out there called astrobotic technology and they've announced that it's a route to deal with united launch alliance to to carry its peregrine lunar lander to the moon in 2019 once again the 50th anniversary of the apollo 11 moon landing the peregrine will fly 35 kilograms of payload provided by 11 customers from six nations Astrobotic Technology is a privately held company based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and was founded in 2008 to develop the transportation service for commercial businesses and government agencies to the lunar surface. The company was at one time a participant in the Google Lunar XPRIZE but dropped out at the end of 2016 when it decided to concentrate on a sustainable business model. The 2019 launch is the first that it has scheduled. Astrobotic is a participant in the NASA Lunar Catalyst program and has partnered with DHL and Airbus. The Peregrine Lunar Lander can deliver either 35 kilograms or 265 kilograms to the lunar surface depending on which launch vehicle is used and how much fuel is stored on board. The lander has its own autonomous landing system that will allow it to touch down within 100 meters of its target. That's pretty impressive, actually. Yeah. It will use a cluster of five ise 100 thrusters to slow its descent to the moon surface the lander has a height of 1.5 meters and a width of 2.5 meters astrobotic would like to become a partner in a nasa-led return to the moon so obviously you've got moon express and the, all these other companies that are getting involved with it now because of how the you know the moon project was cancelled by the Obama administration. You've now got Blue Origin are interested in going to the moon with their project called Blue Moon. <laughs>
4: Oh, I still want to start singing a certain
3: song. Yeah, I know which one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to see that more smaller companies are getting involved with these different projects, and uh, it's great to see them working with companies like uh, ULA to get them there. Um, I'm just trying to think what rocket that would be. No, I cannot see anything here that says... No, it doesn't actually say what rocket, is actually going to be flying on, it just says that they have a, reached an agreement to use one of their launch vehicles. But another Pennsylvania one, John.
4: I saw that. It's Pittsburgh. Yeah. Hey, they're not too far from the uh, boilerplate. Well,
3: they're not going to be using that. <laughs> but,
4: you know, I'm just saying. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm still just... Dis- Totally like, oh, my God, I saw the thing.
3: I'm still hoping that someone will get in touch with them about that to repaint it back to its former glory. That would that be, would be um, amazing. amazing. I would make another it. trip up there to see it. Could it be something we sparked? That
4: would also be amazing <laughs> to think that we would have that kind of reach. Well,
3: we must have some kind of reach to to NASA. I guess, even NASA. contacting us <laughs> yeah. on things. Yeah, that, I still can't get over that. <laughs> Hey,
4: I ain't gonna argue. (laughs) Obviously, you and I are way too old to actually be part of the Mars Generation, but Mm -hmm. we can help because we can help to sponsor the Mars Generation, and I have done that. So, yeah, themarsgeneration.org, that's basically the foundation that Astronaut Abby created to try to, you know, get, get kids more interested in science and getting to Mars and stuff like that. So they do have a membership they've got a whole bunch of different things a bunch of different tiers Uh, some of them are restricted to the US but some of them are international as well although you guys are going to have to end up paying a little bit more but you know t-shirts and uh, patches while they last membership cards stickers uh, discounts on other items and I mean the whole thing is well I mean it's trying to be an outreach program to others regarding the future of space obviously that's something that you and I are, are very interested in seeing us, how well that's what we do here. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, that, it's all about that. They also have a student space ambassador program, as they call it, which is meant to inspire teens and young adults just to share their excitement for space exploration. Uh, and that's free for anyone uh, between 13 and 24. Uh, parents and teachers can also sign up for it. And they also have a space camp scholarship program. Which provides 100% of the funding for kids who are, well, you know, they've got a, uh, an aptitude in STEM, and it'll help them to get to space camp. So there are a lot of good things to go with the, you know, supporting the Mars generation, and their memberships go from $25 all the way up to $20,000. I wish I had the money to do that. Mm-hmm. That would be Fantastic. Uh, so it's simply just go to themarsgeneration.org
3: for more information. Abby has actually contacted TGP Nominal directly through Twitter uh, about helping out. So
4: oh, really, yeah,
3: yeah. Why she didn't has. you forward this to me? <laughs> I'm disappointed in you, sir. Oops. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> the <That> little innocent. <laughs> Sorry. But yeah, it it is a worthwhile cause there are kids right across the globe getting involved in this program and I also know somebody else who is a member of the Mars Generation, Uh, a young lad over here called Luke Barrett. He's not as well known as as Abby, but yeah he desperately wants to get involved with Yuri's Night UK. (laughs) Uh,
4: We need to get Astronaut Abby on here one way or another. (laughs)
3: Japan's first privately funded rocket took off recently from a small platform on the northern island of Hokkaido. The 10-metre-tall rocket made by Interstellar Technologies Incorporated failed to reach its target altitude of 100 kilometres and splashed into the ocean. But its backers said they're going to try again. The, the startup program was founded by former Japanese internet maverick Takafumi Horei who designed and built the rocket called Momo the rocket got liftoff off and flew but unfortunately it didn't make it into space Horei said on his Facebook page but we were able to get valuable data and we will succeed next time it reached an altitude of about 20 kilometers before the team on the ground lost contact shutting down the engine 66 seconds into its flight the launch had already been postponed due to foggy weather and technical difficulties and the japanese media and spectators armed with interstellar stickers and merchandise Mm -hmm. had gathered on a hill near the uh, takai aerospace research field to watch the launch this is the whole thing about space. You never look at anything as a failure. But if you're getting all this data coming back, you know where it, where it went wrong. You look at SpaceX with all the, the times that um, the first stage landing didn't work, but they learned from it every time it landed, or the attempted land, and they made modifications each time it landed. And then eventually they got a formula that worked, and the rest is history. Mm-hmm momo's backers including a crowdfunding initiative that began last year are aiming to make space more accessible through cheaper rockets spurring more research and experimentation more and more of these companies come together and launch these smaller rockets and the more it happens the cheaper it's going to get yeah would um, yeah, you said it's what it
4: was 10 meters yeah Says so what, thirty-three feet? Considering what you and I are used to talking about, that's tiny. Yeah, it is. It's a stepping stone, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. well, and you don't you don't need an SLS to launch everything into space.
3: Technology now is getting smaller and smaller with these, you know, these nano satellites, these nano mm-hmm. cubes, and you don't need a lot of space for them.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, why why do you need a big rocket for that kind of stuff? And the amount of science that you can pack into one of those little cubes. Oh, yeah. It's fantastic. This one didn't make it. They'll make it next time. That's it. And they said that Interstellar are setting its sights on a new goal, developing a rocket that can carry small satellites by 2020. They can do it. Interstellar used widely available parts and its own technology to drive down the cost of the launch to less than 50 million yen, which is uh, $441,000. In comparison, Jax's uh, solid rocket launch cost... 200 million to 300 million yen so that's quite a big difference but they are bigger rockets a lot bigger rockets uh they've made it simple they've made it with parts that are easily available it kind of worked and they can just work on it from there it would be interesting to see how they go i just love listening about these these little rocket stories over the last few months, we've come across so many different ones. That one that launched from New Zealand recently, mm-hmm. um, that one from Camden in Georgia, which we didn't even know there was a launch site in, in, yeah. <laughs> in... <laughs> They've just launched another one recently, actually, saying that, a smaller one, but they have launched again since the last time we mentioned it. So there there's must be hundreds of them now popping up all over the place. Uh, in places that you wouldn't even think of it. We should get some of these guys on cuz I'm interested to know what they need to do to
4: organize a launch. Obviously, you know they got to contact whatever aviation authority to make sure there's nothing in the area, you know, and just what what kind of permits and and things
3: like that. What preparation do they need to do to launch a rocket? I'd like to know that stuff. I might be able to find out a bit more about that because there's a a UK company called Star Chaser and um, the guy who actually runs Star Chaser is actually following us on Facebook He's, he's actually liked TGP Nominal as a page
4: well, hopefully he listens
3: to our show and and, and he listens to your shout out and uh, you get a call from him soon. Yeah, that'd be fantastic because uh, they've been they've been going a little while and the, their rockets are getting bigger all the time and uh, it's a, it's, a, it's a very British concern when you hear the the names of some of the rockets and engines that they use like Churchill engines and Thunderbirds and. And, and things like that. But it's fantastic. And they go around to schools showing off different things that they do. Most of those people who, who work for... Well, they don't exactly work for Star Chaser. They're all volunteers. But they are leaders in their field of, in engineering. It's pretty spectacular stuff. But, um, yeah, hopefully the guys at Star Chaser are listening. Um, and uh, if, if you'd like to get in touch and uh, and talk with us about the process of how to get something to launch um, that would be fantastic
4: there you go there's Mark's number so call him maybe <laughs> oh god I feel dirty now I hate that song <laughs> way too much caffeine for this show man I gotta back off next time it's like I've said on, on my show the internet was specifically created for me to make a fool out of myself and I'm taking advantage of it on this show
3: yeah <laughs> <laughs> there is a lot of um, stuff that we could probably put together as as an outtake reel, and it would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> hey,
4: I'm just impressed that you left your blooper in on the last show.
3: Um, I can't believe I fouled up that early in the recording. <laughs>
2: Ladies and gentlemen, you know it, you love it, you can't live without it. This is TGP normal, nominal. No, no. Damn.
4: Well I guess I probably should have talked about this earlier when we were talking about the boilerplate because that boilerplate was used for test retrieval of you know the, of, of the, the module
1: mm-hmm.
4: for the Apollo missions. Well, the Orion testers have started the same thing. So they've started with their equivalent of a boilerplate. Do they even call it that? Test
3: articles. I think that's what they call them
4: now test articles, yes, because we have to have a more syllable euphemism sort of thing. (laughs) You know, just like shell shock is now post-traumatic stress disorder, that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. So yes, NASA's Orion has started testing in the Gulf of Mexico to retrieve the mock-ups of the crew module in conditions that they might experience following an ocean splashdown. So they used uh, four astronauts, were out there about four miles off of Galveston Island, and the mission was to simulate an emergency scenario that required opening the top hatch and jumping into the water, which obviously is a possibility, should they finally get Orion up there and back. So they have to climb a rope ladder to the top of the spacecraft. Just based on the boilerplate that I saw up in Franklin, looks like they made the Orion capsules a lot bigger. This is like a huge room, comparatively speaking.
3: It's going to have a bigger crew, isn't it?
4: Yeah, I guess. But it just it seems to be just significantly larger than the other one. But anyway, they have, so they have to climb a rope ladder to the top of the spacecraft. Then they have to deploy a life raft. And they have to practice throwing survival equipment overboard. So they, it says that they inflated a banana-like flotation device under their armpits... ...and leapt into the Gulf of of Mexico. So uh, a boat waited nearby just in case something went wrong. But apparently one thing that they do say is that because this was a test... You know, they knew conditions were going to be okay and and they were going to be all right. But astronaut Sonny Williams says that uh, it's exponentially harder when it comes to the actual real thing. Saying that uh, you've got that adrenaline and you're going to do it and you're going to get through it more than likely. But it's really going to be hard because people come back from space and they're tired and they don't feel good. Obviously, this whole thing is to try to prepare them for, you know, whatever eventuality might happen. So uh, they had to undo their seatbelts various tubes that were connected to their suits, uh, their communication systems, their cooling system. Then they had to use a pulley to lower the 100-pound hatch and move it out of the way. There are actually several ways that they can leave the Orion capsule, saying that a non-emergency technique was not tested. Uh, That involves a Navy ship with a device like an inflatable dock, that wraps around the module to stabilize it and to help get the people out of the aircraft.
3: I thought yeah. you was going to say some kind of naval vessel comes along with a big magnet. <laughs>
4: you know, in fairness, the first time I read the article, I was expecting like a big scoop. So you're, you're, I was thinking of it from the bottom. You're thinking of it from the top. Yeah. <laughs> they've gotten far enough that uh, that they've started to practice the, the rescues from the module that returns. And actually, I got something else on this. The uh, interim cryogenic propulsion stage has moved uh, to the space station processing facility. So uh, this this interim cryogenic propulsion stage is the first segment for the SLS to arrive at Kennedy Space Center. It, it was actually designed and built by ULA in Decatur, Alabama, and by Boeing in Huntsville, Alabama. So this is going to be the uh, this is going to be at the top of the SLS, right below the Orion capsule and it's going to provide the liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen for the big uh, push that it needs to get beyond the
3: moon and get back to Earth. They're starting to bring all the pieces together to get the SLS going. That's one of the most positive things I've actually heard about the SLS for a long while.
4: Yeah, and that's not to say that it's not burdened with lots of budget overruns and other things, but, you know, between actually testing the the rescue at sea and now the pieces are starting to come together for the actual rocket. Looks like they're starting to move. Or should, well, I don't want to say it that way. They've been moving, but at least now there are some more evident signs from our perspective that yeah, yeah. It, it, they're they're starting to get it all done.
3: It's more of a, a physical rocket than a paper rocket.
4: That's a very good way of phrasing it.
3: <laughs> when you can actually physically see something coming together, it does change the whole perspective of it all. It it seems to be this is imminent now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you just got to keep watching this space.
4: I see what you did there.
3: (laughs) Crumbs may seem harmless here on Earth, but they can be a hazard in microgravity. And they can get into an astronaut's eye or get inhaled, causing someone to choke. Crumbs could even float into the electrical panel, burn up and cause a fire. That's part of the reason why it was a very big deal in 1965 when John Young, during the Gemini 3 mission, pulled out a corned beef sandwich from his pocket as he was orbiting the Earth with Gus Grissom. Where did that come from, said Gus Grissom. I brought it with me, he said. Young then took a bite, and then microgravity took over, spreading breadcrumbs throughout the spacecraft. This this is actually a true story. It happened. And there is actually, um, I think it's in the Gus Grissom Museum, they've actually preserved what was left of the sandwich and put it (laughs) (laughs) in a perspex case today instead of using bread astronauts usually eat tortillas because they don't crumble in the same way and they're easy to hold with one hand as an astronaut floats about so you really shouldn't be floating around while you're eating anyway you should be trying to try and stay in one place but for many germans tortillas just don't cut it so when a man named sebastian Marku heard that um, german astronaut alexander gerst is returning to the international space station in 2018 that got him thinking should we do something to enable him to have fresh bread in space bread is really a big deal in germany they have bread with pretty much every meal Um, And there's thousands of different variations of uh, bread out there. To Marku, a German astronaut in space without fresh bread seems like a uh, preventable problem. And he and his friend, an engineer, started a company called Bake in Space back in, um, in March. They've partnered with the German Aerospace Center, which is basically... German's version of NASA and their goal is to make an oven that can successfully bake dough on the International Space Station by 2018. There are a lot of obstacles that make baking difficult in space. First the oven needs to function on about a tenth of the power an oven here on earth does. And it's pretty much impossible to preheat the oven because if it gets hot and then the door is opened, a giant hot air bubble could leave the oven and float into the spacecraft. It could just sit there in midair and the astronauts could basically burn himself as he flies through it. Oh, wow. Wow. See, these kind of things you don't think about. And then there's the problem of the dough. At a low heat, bread has to bake for a longer amount of time, but the longer it bakes, the drier it gets, and crumbling must be avoided at all costs because of the havoc breadcrumbs wreck in space. Despite all the technical challenges, Marku predicts that his company will able to have Alexander Gerst bake the first loaf of sourdough in space next year. It's not just about making one German astronaut happy with fresh bread. (laughs) There's something, uh, a really deeper meaning to bread in space. It would be good to be able to produce your own food. I thought about this the other day. If they're going to make their own bread in space, they're starting to have their own lettuce in space, as we know, they've been eating lettuce in space. Get some tomato and some bacon, and then you've got a BLT, you know, a bacon lettuce, tomato sandwich. (laughs) Get some cheese, and they got pizza. Yeah, that's true. I'll let you know. It... Keep keep the
4: Italians you... happy.
3: Yeah. There
4: you go. I don't know. Did you guys have these over there? Easy bake ovens. Yeah, we've had something like that. The easy bake oven way back when, before, uh, before the the standard incandescent bulbs became the evil of the earth. Mm-hmm. One of, one of the big toy makers, they had what was called the easy bake oven, mm-hmm. and recipes and so forth and you could bake little cakes, legitimate cakes with a 60 watt light bulb.
3: It's amazing how hot those bulbs get. Mhm. But you really figured amazing. 60
4: watts that's See when you first said, you know, about the ovens that we have here, I'm thinking the big huge ovens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you put that thing to 400 degrees and it's going to soak up a lot of juice. Oh yeah. But something along the lines of like an easy bake that might not be an issue. And if they can find a way to keep moisture in there so that it doesn't get
3: as dry, I can see that working. Yeah. The things are actually getting on board the ISS now, I mean, they've they've got this kind of greenhouse thing up there now. Mm-hmm. They've got um, the ISS Bresso. I don't know if you remember <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. The, uh, the Lavazza coffee machine that they've got up there uh, if they can get this bread oven up there yeah it won't be long before you get Subway in space <laughs> and yeah that, that sandwich you were talking about
1: yeah
4: it, they've actually got it encased in acrylic
3: yeah <laughs> unbelievable museum piece how did he get that on the board if it's been What's in that- his pocket I mean ugh
4: <laughs> I, well yeah there, there is that <laughs>
3: I thought it was a joke at first. I thought they it made this stuff like up. It. And then I looked it up. There's pages about it on the NASA website. Um, so if it's coming from NASA, you know that it's it's true. What I was trying to get hold of before we went on air, and I don't know if it's available, but you know there's hundreds and hundreds of hours of audio from different missions. I was hoping there was actually some recording of that conversation between Grissom and Young when he pulled out this sandwich. <laughs> (laughs) because I would have had to have played it in because that would have been brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) But I couldn't find it. It probably is out there. If anybody knows about this and has heard the actual conversation on some kind of recording, let us know because I'd love to hear it. (laughs) There's so many stories about what happens on these missions that you, you don't often hear about. And... It, it just brings humanity into the whole space thing because the the back and forth between the astronauts. So there's, there is some, you know, the camaraderie that goes along with it. It's not all about the hardware and the technology and everything. It's the people inside those capsules that makes all, of them, all the difference.
4: We've talked about that bag of moon dust that was won by, uh, well... The woman got it back from NASA after they had taken it from her. Mm-hmm. We talked about that but last one or the one before, whatever. Well, there's an update. She did what she was going to do, and it sold at Sotheby's in New York for $1.8 million. Wow. <laughs> she bought it for a little under a 1000 and it just sold for $1.8 million million dollars million dollars pinky in mouth that whole thing <laughs> where, where did
3: it end up uh, let me see if it says who the buyer is we were hoping it was going to end up in um, it, instead of being in somebody's private collection being in a museum somewhere or, or yeah
4: some- Let's see.
3: Here it is to my right, up
4: front, at $1.5 million, announced auctioneer Joe Dunning before striking down the hammer, completing the sale to an unidentified bidder on the phone. Ah, uh, right. Okay. We have no clue who purchased it, but as you said, hopefully, it will end up going to a museum. Speaking of museums, some idiot, let's just go with And that, I think that's being kind, <laughs> yeah. decided to steal the gold lunar module replica from the Neil Armstrong Air and Space Museum and this this apparently was a solid gold facsimile of the module and it, it was actually designed by you know French luxury designer Cartier Wow so he made one for each of the Apollo 11 astronauts Michael Collins Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong and whoever it was just ran in grabbed it and in fact i mean there were some other things that were considered to be even possibly more valuable uh like some actual rocks from the moon and so forth but the worst part is the big fear is that because it's solid gold whoever stole it is just going to melt it down for the money that that's just like you got to be kidding me there's a chance very 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 slight chance that This is someone who's like a a serious space enthusiast and plans to just keep it, but the thing is made of solid gold, and the chances of that happening, I, I don't know. But right, um, So that, that's the big fear, that it's going to get melted down, which means it's going to be completely untraceable and
3: unrecoverable. The thing is, though, that something like that, which is completely unique, if, it, if you take it to anywhere to get melted down, surely that's going to send alarm bells ringing somewhere.
4: Maybe, but that assumes that the place that it would get melted down doesn't do this sort of thing for other criminal activities, so uh, what do they care? That's true. I mean, and gold is a very soft metal. It wouldn't take much
3: to melt it. Because we were talking about something similar. You know, when you've got one of the masters, one of the paintings that gets stolen from one of the huge art right. galleries somewhere. I mean, what can you do with it? You can't sell it because mm-hmm. it's a world-renowned piece. So you're going to end up having it in storage somewhere. And what what's the point of that?
4: <laughs> yeah, because apparently it also had an Apollo 11 moon rock that would be worth millions, you know, to, to someone who's really into that sort of thing.
3: Mm. But they didn't take that. So it comes across to me as an opportunist.
4: Yeah, and unfortunately the uh, possible result, most likely result, is not a good one. I'm sure you remember a photo from a few years back that suddenly out of nowhere went viral and gave a lot of people a different perspective on uh, the various launches back in 1960. And that was a picture of Margaret Hamilton... Uh, stacking up a bunch of uh, manuals for code that she wrote for the various missions. Well, an author by the name of Dean Robbins decided that hey, you know what? That could probably make a great kids' book. The story of of how you know she how she did all that, and how she went through NASA, and how she developed the code for the Apollo missions, and so forth. So. He said that we associate the 1960s space program with men, which is true, uh, both in orbit and behind the scenes, so it was revelatory to find that a woman had played such an important role. As a children's author, I wondered if Hamilton's career might be an inspiring story for kids. And so he decided to try to find out. In fact, he was able to track her down. Told her about what he was going to do, and she agreed to talk to him. So he went straight to the source. Now, again, this this is a, meant mostly for kids, but I'm sure that there's stuff in there that you and I could learn as well. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, she talked about uh, her childhood home, where she would, uh, you know, just have a whole bunch of, of questions about the sky and NASA, and where she led a team from MIT to develop onboard flight software you know, for the Apollo missions. So he said that there wasn't much published about her, which is an all too typical phenomenon for accomplished women throughout history. Yeah. Uh, few exceptions, I guess, you know, Marie Curie, I think most people know about her, mm-hmm. but you know, how many of us knew about Margaret Hamilton before that photo or, you know,
3: uh, the the lady you're trying were trying to think of was Catherine Johnson. Um, well, really,
4: all three of them from from Hidden Figures. Yeah,
3: so you've got Catherine uh, Johnson, Dorothy Vaughan, and uh, Mary Jackson.
4: Yep. My brain blanked out and you covered for me. Good job, sir. Who really knew those stories before that information came out? So he said, uh, I'm a longtime journalist, so I put on my reporter's hat, tracked down her email address, and asked if she'd be interested in doing an interview with me for a possible children's book. Apparently she was intrigued. He said that uh, she's the opposite of a self-promoter, but she has young grandchildren and thought it would be fun to read them a picture book about her career so he said that she was telling him a bunch of stories that no one had ever reported about how much she loved uh, problem-solving back then she felt that there was an unfairness about how women had fewer opportunities than men and she resolved to change that as much as she could she joined the boys baseball team and according to this she even renamed some of the daddy long legs she found in her yard as mommy long legs (laughs) Uh, I don't know that they're called Daddy Long Legs all over the world. Uh, are they also called
3: Harvestmans? Different people call them different things. Um, yeah, we call them Daddy Long Legs here.
4: Okay. But uh, with the code that she did, she took Apollo 8 around the moon, helped Apollo 9 dock two spacecraft, and also maneuvered Apollo 9 within nine miles of the lunar surface. So, And, of course, there's that historical photo of her stacked up with all of her code for Apollo 11. But even at that, she also had the Apollo 11 lunar module ready to land on the moon, but there was a problem with the guidance computer. But she actually anticipated that and programmed the computer to ignore extraneous tasks when there's a problem and to focus specifically on the landing. So Apollo 11 landed just fine. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, there's just a whole book about her and her life and and everything leading up to that, you know, the missions and and the code that she wrote and so forth,
3: and it's meant for kids. I think that's probably why she got involved with it mm-hmm. anyway, because you know, it's it's a good way for her to inspire another generation. Absolutely. Talking of which, have you got Hidden Uh-oh. Figures on hard copy yet? Have you got your uh, disc? Are you kidding? I had mine the day it came out. Well, I've had mine for a few weeks now, but. Uh... Because it obviously came out later than it did in the States, because it was released at the cinema later than it was uh, in the States, because you had yours in... uh,
2: Yeah, but
4: wasn't that something like two months? Two months. Maybe
3: three? Yeah, Yeah, it it didn't come out here till February. That's insane. That's been a pet peeve of mine for a long time. Mm Mm-hmm. Growing up in the 80s, it was commonplace, you know, whether it be music or... Um, films coming out of the cinema or whatever, if it, if it was an American thing, we used to have to wait sometimes a good six to eight months before it got released over what? here. What? Yeah. Are you serious? Well, Star Wars there's a good example for it. It came out, what was it? Uh it came out in May mm-hmm. in America. Uh, we had to wait until December.
4: Wow. Holy cow. Okay. <laughs> I'm wondering if back then it was for reasons like you guys got sent some of the better quality prints that were left over from the American run.
3: Oh, right, yeah. Nowadays, there's just no excuse. Not with everything being digital, it's... uh... Digital at this point.
4: Mm -hmm. You send it across satellites, okay. I really don't understand why there would be a... Especially, I mean... Well, okay, Hidden Figures, <sighs> uh, even though the discs have to be manufactured, I can't understand why it was a two-month delay. Well, that would also have meant that it was a two-month delay on any streaming releases, too. Yeah. Don't even get me started on that one.
3: <laughs> there is absolutely no reason for any delay on streaming.
4: Oh, I'm, I'm sure you've heard me rant over on my show.
3: Oh, Yeah. If you haven't seen Hidden Figures, uh, so, and, and, and I can't imagine why anybody who's listening to a space oriented podcast hasn't seen it, even if you're not interested in space, I mean, my other half has, has watched it and she enjoyed it. So. I'm generally. Not into that kind
4: of movie either. As the credits were running, I just thought to myself, I want to see this again right now. I enjoyed it that much.
3: Yeah, it, it is a, a feel-good movie, definitely.
0: Lift-off. We have a on Okay, all flight controllers, gonna go for landing. Retro. Go. Fido. go
1: Guidance. Go. No. Control. Go. Downline.
0: Ecom. Right go. Capcom, we're go for landing. This is Mission Control. On July 20th, 1969, we made history. A group of young people came together to land the first man on the moon and bring him safely home. I believe that this was the greatest engineering feat of the 20th century. In 1985, this room was designated a National Historic Landmark. After Apollo, it was reconfigured for the shuttle program time has also taken its toll. This is a very special place, and I am passionate about the importance of restoring and preserving this room to its authentic Apollo-era configuration. It's a national monument, and it deserves to be shown in the best possible light. In order for that to happen, we need your help. The city of Webster was home to many of the flight controllers and engineers who worked on Apollo. So when Space Center Houston launched a $5 million fundraising campaign to restore mission control, the city of Webster made a gift of $3.1 million. They also issued a challenge to you. We're calling it the Webster Challenge to Restore Historic Mission Control. This is how it works. If you make a donation on our Kickstarter page, they'll match your gift, dollar for dollar, to help us reach our final goal. And we've got some great perks for those who join the challenge.
5: I can remember as a, as a child, watching the first man walk on the moon. And to me, that was just amazing.
4: Well, it's like any piece of our history. You know, if you don't take care of it, it, ro- it erodes away and it's gone forever. And once it's gone, you can't ever get it back. If you leave it as it is, it's gonna keep deteriorating, and then you would probably lose a lot of the, the history that is there. And by restoring it, you can keep it alive for future generations.
0: This campaign will help preserve a vital part of our country's history. Time is tight. Our Kickstarter campaign will last just 30 days. But with your help, we can make this room look just the way it did in July 1969 as we guided Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin to the moon's surface. Join us now in saving mission control so that we can celebrate a great leap for mankind and inspire the imagination of future generations.
3: Anyone who uh, watched footage from the Apollo mission launches should recognise that voice, because that is the voice of uh, Apollo Flight Director Gene Kranz, who couldn't have been a better person to make the appeal for this Kickstarter programme. With the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11 approaching, restoration of the historic mission control is, is now urgent because it has deteriorated to a point that the National Park Service has listed it as threatened, and that was in 2015. Retired Mission Control Operation team members are working with Space Center Houston to secure the funds needed to restore the site and create a world-class visitor experience that will inspire future generations through this amazing story of technological and human achievement. In 2016, Space Center Houston launched a $5 million campaign to fund this important effort. As mentioned there, the nearby city of Webster in Texas was home to many of the flight controllers, engineers and scientists. Now, the city of Webster has stepped forward with that gift that they mentioned of $3.1 million for the campaign. On top of that was this challenge that they're talking about here, the Webster Challenge. Now, they will match, or they have matched, donations dollar for dollar to a maximum of $400,000. So if you raise $400,000, they will match another $400,000 to help reach the $5 million goal to restore the Mission Control Center. The project will start later this month, once they have funding that is, with the restoration and uh, reanimation of the consoles. As this was part of the project that has the longest lead time, Whilst this is taking place, crews will begin basic cleaning and repair and refurbishment of the site, replacing the carpets, acquiring all the historic furnishings required for a fully authentic Apollo-era mission control. The anticipated completion date for the entire project is January 2019, in advance of the 50th anniversary. The budget for the project includes the cost of the restoration of the Mission Control Centre, future maintenance of the site and the development of a first class visitor experience that will interpret the Apollo program for the public Kickstarter funds will also be used to produce and deliver unique apollo inspired rewards for the backers renowned star trek designer michael akuda he's created a special mission patch for this project and um, there's a punch out model of the apollo 11 command module And there's also a documentary specially made for this called Mission Control Unsung Heroes of Apollo, which is available for people who donate. For backers interested in unique experiences, there are several once-in-a-lifetime opportunities. They needed to raise 400000 for the challenge to work. At the moment... The total stands up $411,273. As we record. And there's still 11 days left to go.
4: Oh, and it looks like, for those of us in the U.S., any donations are tax deductible.
3: Yes, they are, yeah. Whatever
4: amount is deductible from your pledge for federal income tax purposes, please retain this document for your records.
3: Yeah, look at this. That's... Okay, hold on. What's the big one? The big one... Some of the big ones have sold out already.
4: Hold! $10,000 to meet flight director Gene Kranz. There were 10
3: available. They're all gone. Yeah. There's some big... Oh, um, and I will say this. Uh, one of the uh, the donators to this is friend of the show, Richard Garriott. So... Um... Oh, nice. <laughs> This is how I found out about this, to be honest, <laughs> and I'm wondering now which one of these has he gone for
4: <laughs> that mission patch
3: yeah oh i I wouldn't
4: be surprised if he did one of the if he did the ten thousand mm. that wouldn't shock me at all
3: mm. I mean because he used to live out that way, didn't he so uh, uh well, he was well, good at that just just because it's Richard Garriott mm. You know,
4: this is something very near and dear to him.
3: hmm
4: And $10,000? Uh, I don't think that's a problem for him. No, not really. Hmm, that patch from Michael Okuda. Hmm. $55 pledge, huh? I might have to do that. It's quite a nice patch, actually. Yeah. We shall see. I also like t-shirts, though, too. There's a $35 pledge for that. I could do both. <laughs> I did that accidentally with the... Uh, the, the documentary behind Deep Space Nine? Oh, yeah, yeah. I didn't realize that I pledged twice to that.
3: <laughs> Oops.
4: Oop, well, I mean, I don't mind. You know, it's just one of those things where it's like, why am I getting a second notification for uh, where to send the, the behind-the-scenes Blu-ray? What? Oh. Oh, yeah, I did. Hmm. Oh, well, you know what? That means I'll be getting two, two. copies of the documentary. Yeah. Oh, uh, you know, I might be able to... You know, shipping a disc to England doesn't cost <laughs> that much. I might be persuaded to do that. <laughs> Maybe.
3: <laughs> yes.
4: <Yeah. laughs> I know someone who might appreciate that.
3: Yeah, it, even I mean, well, you know I love watching all the behind-the-scenes stuff. Anyway, oh yeah, um, mm-hmm. I love all that stuff. Um, but what, on an iconic show like that, is just uh, I I prefer that to actually things like um, uh, Next Generation and things like that. I, I prefer. I, I think, do
4: realize you just committed sacrilege in the eyes of a lot of people. Yeah, I know. But the thing is, I'm with you on that one. I still prefer Deep Space Nine.
3: Uh, there was something really special about that, because of the fact that th- th- there was endless things you could do with it. Mm-hmm.
4: And, and they also showed real character progression. Mm-hmm. You didn't know from one episode to the next if that person was going to do something bad or something good. Yeah. You know, that they handled a bunch of stuff that, that went all over the political spectrum.
3: And and not, and not to mention the crossover with the original series.
4: Yeah, those crossovers were fun, and seeing some of the characters from the, uh, you know, from Next Generation crossing over into it—that was fun. Uh It was just, yeah, it was dark, and if you missed one episode, you might lose something later on. Yeah, which is something else that Gene Roddenberry didn't really want. But sorry, I really, really like that series.
3: I I think it was a more grown-up approach to Star Trek. Um, it, it was almost like well, this is the, the Star Trek version of um, empires, if you know what I mean. Because <laughs> yeah. that was always classed as the more grown-up version of the Star Wars trilogy, wasn't it? Out of the right. out of the three, my favorite out of the three, to be honest. Yeah, the the good guys had it handed to them on several episodes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I agree totally. Too bad
4: we'll never get an HD version, though. Yeah. Oh, well. Yeah. Yeah. Just take what we got.
2: Hi. I'm uh, Commander Chris Hadfield. I'm here with Eleanor. This is my granddaughter. And we're here to talk about planetary protection because NASA is advertising right now for a planetary protection officer. Sounds like a crazy title. But Eleanor lives in China, and she's visiting here to Canada right now. Um, And she caught a little cold somewhere along the way. She transported... Some little bit of life from one part of this planet to the other. And in the past on Earth, that's caused some real problems. We've had worldwide flu epidemics and plague, and and when we first came as Europeans to the Americas, it, it caused havoc and, and killed huge swaths of population because we weren't thinking about the effect of something as trivial as a runny nose on the rest of the world. And nasa is in the business of not just going from continent to continent but actually going from planet to planet we really take it seriously and so nasa appoints one person to think about how canada's bugs yeah canada's bugs might cause a problem on another planet and we've been to enceladus where there's plumes of water squirting out into space and there's oceans on europa maybe there's life somewhere else we don't want to to cause an epidemic that wipes it out. And also when we start bringing bits of the moon back or eventually bits of Mars back, we don't want the opposite to happen and cause some sort of unexpected contamination on Earth. So that's why uh, Cassie, who's retiring as, Canada, or as NASA's uh, Planetary Protection Officer, um, she's been doing it for 11 years. Uh, she's retiring and NASA's looking for a new one. So if you wanna help protect the planet, then See if you can have the qualifications to be NASA's Planetary Protection Officer. You can find it online. And then you can take care of people like me and like Eleanor and everyone all around this blue ball. Hi, everybody. Taking care of her.
3: It's different when you hear someone like Chris Hadfield explaining the situation.
4: Yeah, because I'm sure you and I thought the same kind of thing when we heard
3: about Planetary
4: Protection Officer.
3: The money is pretty cool. Oh, I didn't actually look it up. It pays between $124,000 and $187,000 annually. Wow. The position is for three years, which could be extended up to another two, so in total five years. Where is it located? I can't actually see where it says it's based.
4: If it's based, like, in D.C. or in a major city in the U.S., it's nice, but it's not as impressive as it sounds. (laughs) Uh, Trust me, just take a look at cost of living in the D.C. area and prepare to be shocked.
3: They have this thing called London Waiting, okay, whereas you could be working at the same company. One's got an office in London and one's got an office at another smaller town. You would get paid twice as much for working in london than you would in a smaller town because of the cost of living mm-hmm. in london yeah london is a bit of a rip-off city to be honest well just apply
4: that to dc and northern virginia regardless nonetheless one hundred hundred and eighty thousand that's respectable that's even in the dc area I, i'm curious to see what that involves the qualifications for that must be incredible
3: uh yeah pretty much The recent announcement for the position that NASA has had since the 1960s, the Planetary Protection Officer, has generated a lot of excitement with the public, as well as many comparisons to sci-fi movie heroes. (laughs) And it's also caught the attention of one self-proclaimed Guardian of the Galaxy. An inspired little boy from New Jersey who has reached out to NASA in a letter to express his interest in serving as the agency's planetary protection officer. Nine-year-old Jack Davis is in return receiving a letter from NASA's planetary science director Jim Green. Jack's letter read, I may be nine, but I think I would be fit for the job. One of the reasons is my sister says I'm an alien. Also, I've seen almost all the space movies and alien movies I can see, Jack said in his handwritten letter, which NASA shared in a tweet. I've also seen the show Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and hope to see the movie Men in Black, he explained, adding that he's great at playing video games, he's a quick learner, and the fact that he's young and can learn to think like an alien. Um, (laughs) planetary science director jim green responded to to davis by writing a follow-up letter he said i hear you're a guardian of the galaxy and interested in being a planetary protection officer that's great our planetary protection officer position is really cool and is very important work it's about protecting the earth from tiny microbes when bringing back samples from the moon asteroids and mars he added we're also looking for bright future scientists and engineers to help us so i hope you will study hard and do well at school we hope to see you here at nasa on one of these days which i thought was really nice and if i received a letter from someone like that it definitely would have been framed (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, that's it's really cool that even something like that is inspiring kids. But I, th- I think it's just the fact that they've seen the, the, the title, Planetary Protection Officer. It does sound <laughs> like Men in Black.
4: Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's why, I mean, the first thing I thought of was Alien Invasion. It's like, what are they thinking of? That's just you know, the sci-fi geek in me. <laughs> Chris Hadfield had to just take all that away, didn't he?
3: Oh, yeah.
4: (laughs) Throw some logic on it. (laughs) But
3: when Chris speaks, you listen.
4: Oh, yeah, absolutely.
3: (laughs) No question. He is such a legend. You know, even though he's not exactly retired because he still works for the Canadian Space Agency, he still brings the science to people, which is great. So that's about all we've got time for on the news front. But if you come back after this short break... We will be bringing you a new segment, and hopefully, it'll be a regular segment.
0: Good morning. It's T minus 45 minutes until the final countdown commences. In less than one hour, if all goes according to plan, the three members of the Apollo 11 crew will blast off in their... My father's name was Edwin Eugene Aldrin. ...has dreamt of mankind's greatest adventure. I became Buzz. Destination, the moon. He looked back at the Earth and watched it get smaller.
1: Oh, it was beautiful. Apollo 11, this is Houston. I've got the morning news here, if you're interested. Over. Go ahead, Houston.
0: Uh, An Irishman has won the World Porridge Eating Championship by consuming 23 bowls of instant oatmeal. I'd
4: like to enter Aldrin in the oatmeal eating contest next time. He's on his 19th (laughs) bowl. Roger.
0: Human nature and curiosity is to explore the world around us. And the world around us includes way beyond. Don't you think you're go for landing, over. I do the thing. Go for landing. Roger, 1202, we copy you. We're go. same type. Right, we're go. Okay, engine stop. We copy you down, Eagle. Eagle, Eagle. Magnificent
1: desolation.
0: The next generation of explorers should not ever give up
3: so welcome back to tgp nominal with me on the show i have ross hockham from the uk astronomy group how are you doing sir
6: not too bad mate yourself
3: absolutely fantastic now I thought it'd be great to have someone who is involved in astronomy um, to tell the listeners a little bit more about what's happening up in the sky each month. But before we carry on with that kind of stuff, I thought it would be a nice opportunity for you to tell our listeners a little bit more about what UK astronomy have been up to recently. So what's new in the pipeline for you guys?
6: We're trying to raise some money to get, I call it a Moby. I don't think that's the official name for it, but it's a mobile observatory which really is just a van. We want we want a box van, we want to try and wrap it with the UK astronomy logo around the outside. Uh, some people, bless them, they've been uh, funding us to for a planet on the side, so their name's gonna be in the planet, so they donate a bit of money to us. We put their name on a planet on the outside, so it's a good way to fundraise. And uh, so far, we've managed to raise about 1,800 pounds Wow. And that's, that's only been over a couple of months, so it's just gone really, really, really well. And the main aim for it is we've managed to get, through donations again, uh, a big 16-inch Dobsonium, which is a, a huge reflector telescope, which is going to go into the back with loads of other stuff so we can teach, you know, show them the sun as well, safely, and things like that, and teach kids. But we want to get this van to have all the gear in it, take it anywhere open it up in the middle of, you know, a school field or something, have a projector so we can do talks from it, awnings so we can get people to sit round and actually, you know, actually show them, not just from a laptop, actually show them, there's the sun, there's a planet, that little dot, look through this telescope and it will suddenly become, you know, that magnificent planet you've seen, Not not as well on the laptop because, you know, they can zoom in, especially Hubble, but they can actually see it with their own eyes. There's the dot that is a planet. So that's our main aim. I mean, it's going to take, we're looking probably about five to 7,000, but that's to buy the van, wrap it, get some of the gear in there. And we want to make sure that it runs for at least two years, you know, all the insurance and tax and all the the political stuff we actually have to do (laughs) to get it running. Because we want to open astronomy to everyone. We want to be able to turn up to anywhere, even just someone's house, just to help them out of a scope for a cup of tea. That's, that's what we love about it, and that's what we do.
3: Now, how would people go about helping you out with this?
6: Uh, really, we've got the website on there. You can donate to us through that. We've got Just Giving page. It's on there. We've got a Facebook group, so people go onto there and we talk to them. And that's linked to our page as well. There's a Facebook events page, which tells you what's going on in the sky. Almost not every day, it's so don't bombard you with the cool stuff. And on there, there's a donate button as well. Or you can just email us. And just say look would really like to help I me mean, one lady anonymous we don't know who she is she rang up tring astronomy center which is the nearest one to us being in milton keynes and uh, she just said look i want to buy them a scope what would you recommend and it just so happens i was in there talking about this scope to help beginners with uh, celestron inspire and bless her she paid for it and got it sent to us without us even knowing it just turned up as a donation wow and it's just it is a the amount of you know help and people sponsoring us and supporting us has just been amazing to go from one guy in a field of a passion to someone actually buying and donating us a scope to me that's you know it makes you well up
3: (laughs) yeah you you do feel it
6: that's that's the ways you can get to help us all our astronomers are volunteers none of us get paid but we're now a charity so we can actually apply for grants and things like that and, you know to actually do that and support us for me it's like wow uk astronomy was just you know a facebook group that's what started with 30 friends that was it and now there's like 2,000 members in there they're all talking and chatting and it's become something now <laughs> something you love and a passion has now turned into you know other people's it's
3: pretty amazing stuff You've come on the show to advise our listeners uh, about what's going on up there. Um, what, what have you got for us?
6: There's a couple of main events coming up. I think there's been a lot of talk about the uh, solar eclipse, Yeah. which is, is mainly in America. And it's it's going to be a proper totality. It's going to be really good there. But unfortunately, I haven't really got a few grand to fly over and <laughs> <laughs> stay and see it. And plus, being UK, generally, we have to really talk about what's going on in the UK, yeah. which is what the group's really about. So, yeah, you've got a solar eclipse, which uh, we will see a bit of, and I can talk about that if you like in a sec. Sure. Uh, There's also a big meteor shower. Even though it's August and, you know, the sun doesn't really set too well, you can still see quite a lot of meteors coming across. It's one of the best ones. The other one's in December so it's a really good one to get the kids out to go and see and then there's there's a few little events going on you know you can see saturn and jupiter are up and also the moon's always about so there's bits and pieces you can see with that so yeah really the two main events are what can we see in the uk of the solar eclipse and a a nice big meteor shower
3: superb we have spoken to noah petro at NASA about the eclipse from the american side of it but as you said i thought it'd be nice to speak to you about it um because it'd be interesting to see what we can expect as brits
6: uh, as brits we are quite often disappointed especially with the weather because it does uh, get in the way quite a bit, as as I can see out my window right now. I'm meant to be going out tonight actually to do some astronomy, but I don't think it's going to happen. What are we actually going to see here? (laughs) It's happening on the 21st of August, and unfortunately for us, we're not really going to see much of it. It's not going to be like the 2015 one. Uh, You saw that one, didn't you? Yes, I did. Back in March, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, I was lucky enough to be there. It was was another partial, wasn't it, which is what this one is for Mm
3: -hmm. us. Yeah.
6: But it almost covered the whole of the sun didn't it It just kind of glanced across yeah i, was like, I, I remember uh, i was actually sat out where i started the astronomy in my wife's pink plastic office chair my homemade cardboard filter with a certified film of course i had a pair of solar glasses and i remember just sitting there watching it and as it neared totality it got colder The birds stopped singing it went really quiet and dim it's really weird i was kind of thinking oh, this is this is odd man so for the americans it's gonna be fantastic for them to see the full thing
1: yeah
6: i was just i was just lucky i the the pavilion there brought me out coffee and cake so i was quite happy sitting there and that's pretty much where you started actually so yeah anyway this year's for us isn't going to be that great (laughs) you will see it from what i've read you can see the moon it's just going to kind of graze the bottom of the sun right and it's going to be around about seven o'clockish onwards but if you want to go out before that and have a look do and it'll be from then to about sunset and what you should see is you just see the edge of the moon going across the bottom of the sun it will drift over and then drift it may just drift off before the sun sets but it may not the only problem with it is it's going to be quite low in the sky so it might be hazy due to the atmosphere in the summer so the heat makes it hazy but as you know, as it gets closer to the uh, horizon, it tends to have a, a cool effect where it looks bigger. So it looks like a big supermoon. So it might actually give you quite a good effect. quite a cool effect of a big hazy sun with a bit of the moon going across it. So it's definitely worth popping out for a peek.
3: Yeah, that sounds really cool, actually. I mean, anything that's different from the norm, <laughs> if yeah. you know what I mean. Um, yeah, I mean,
6: I, I even enjoy watching the moon rise when it's in the summer. You get, it looks huge, doesn't it? And it mm. kind of wobbles in the atmosphere. And it's, you know, just something cool to go out and look at.
3: Yeah, it certainly is. I mean, I've got a few shots of the moon that I've taken. Strangely, because I, I don't actually own a telescope myself. Yeah. I think, oh, we're going to have to change that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking into it. <laughs>
6: <laughs> you have to come and visit me. I've got a few to borrow. <laughs> <I.
3: laughs> and uh, you, you saw the, uh, the photo that um, I put up that got posted in all the all about space magazine. Um, oh, nice one. That was just done with uh, a bog standard camera. It's got a mm. pretty good zoom on it, but uh you know, it's got a few settings on there so that you can change it from uh, the auto everything to to manual and and sort out the light settings and all kinds of yep. things. And it's quite surprising what what you can get just with that.
6: I haven't got a camera. I'm the opposite to you i got a scope but not a camera Mm -hmm. and I just used my iPhone when I first ever put it against I just put it against the eyepiece nothing fancy held it there kind of tried to you know fiddle around with it wobbling around trying to adjust the focus and took a picture of the moon for it wow it was amazing I thought just with my phone so now I I say to kids do you want a picture of your own moon they're like yeah it's like come here then come here you get them and you get them to do it and they take it and then they can take it into school and show all their friends and you know it's their picture it's it's, it's great i couldn't believe that you can do it with just your phone yeah so to have a camera as well i mean technology is great now it's come right down so the amateur astronomer like myself which i like to call myself amateur because i do make mistakes i'm not always right so do correct me (laughs) and uh yeah all i do is look at the sky i'm not a you know physicist or anything i just look and say yeah that dot's jupiter but yeah to actually get people out now and say look you can get a scope for under 100 pound that will help you and you can see this and see that and so it's really really good for us now. Mm-hmm. and can use this technology.
3: When it comes to looking at the Eclipse, safety is, is number one. Definitely. What do you suggest?
6: Uh, well, from experience, I've, when I had my old cardboard filter, I did actually almost have an accident with it because as I was looking through, the wind blew it off. I was drawing stun spots at the time. I just happened to look away as it flew off and I did get a couple of black dots in my eye where it had you know, come through the eyepiece. So speaking from experience, I know how dangerous it can be. Mm -hmm. and that does put a lot of people off a lot of people say is it is it safe to look at the sun you know everyone tells you don't look at the sun don't look at the sun and that is completely true never look at the sun through any piece of equipment unless you have got a trained professional with you or you know what you're doing if you've got the right equipment it's absolutely fine i mean astronomers we study sunspots we use hydrogen alpha scopes which show flares and things called quarks as well which shows all the flares around and they, they do it for years and years without harm, but that's because they've got the right equipment and they know what they're doing. So if you're gonna go down a professional route, what you need to do is you need to buy a filter. You need to ensure it's got the CE and the BS marks. BADA seem to be the best, which is B-A-D-A-A-R but they are the most expensive. I mean, for an average scope, you're probably looking maybe 30, 40 pound, 50 pound. Mine for my 10 inch was about 80 to 100. Mm-hmm. Said, so, and they're they're the best ones. They'll give you a really good view, but you can get a square bit of solar film and then you cut it out to the shape of your one. You have to attach it properly, <laughs> unlike me. <laughs> On the, on the end of it, and you will be able to see it. It'll be sort of like a red sun, and you'll see sunspots, and you will see it go through there. But always remember to cover your finder scope as well, the little bit that helps you find where stuff is. Right. Because... There was an astronomer in the 1930s who managed to set his beard alight while he was looking through because it went straight onto it, so you've got to be really careful. But if you haven't got a scope, quite often the magazines like Sky at Night or Astronomy Now will put solar glasses on the front and then you just hold them up against your eyes and look up and you usually find no problem at all. Uh, You can use two pieces of card, I've been told. I've not tried it myself, but if you put a pinhole in one in the middle and move it away from the other one to a certain point, it will kind of reflect the sun onto the other bit of card. So if anyone wants to try that, let us know because that'd be great. If you're really good at crafting, you can make a box pinhole projector, which is pretty much the same thing, but it's in a box. And you put a hole in it. It projects it to the other side. So then you can see the sun through that safely. Some people even use a colander. They just get a colander out of the kitchen, move it up so it's facing the sun and put a bit of paper behind it and you get about 10 suns then. But I've not tried that yet. I think that's good for eclipses because you will see the dark bit go across of the moon four sunspots i don't think you're going to see anything (laughs) so it's good for that
3: there is um a site that nasa have devised and one of the things that you can actually download is an stl file which is what you need to 3d print Um, and they've given you the file so that you can actually 3d print your own pinhole camera oh that's cool (laughs) that is cool they've got a, a bog standard one or they've got one of all different 50 states so you can have one the shape of each of different,
6: different <laughs> oh trust america eh? they had to go all out didn't they see that beats that beats me uk use two bits of card america 3d print it <laughs> <laughs> but yeah not bad if, if it gets people out looking up there why not uh, if you have got a pair of binoculars or a refractor which is the normal you know the scope you just look through one end yeah straight through almost like napoleon style if you take the caps off and put a piece of paper behind that that because it's got a lens and not a mirror you can reflect through it and you can see the sun but don't keep it there for too long because if the lens gets too hot or too warm it can warp so it's kind of like have a little look put the cap back on. That sort of thing. It's just literally, if you've got put the binoculars up facing the sun mm. as best you can without looking. And then you put the piece of paper by the, you know, the oh, right. yep. and yeah, you move and it away it. slowly and, and it'll it. get to a point where it should show you the sun through it.
3: Right. Okay.
6: Apparently, I've, I've not tried it yet. I've got, I've got all these things I'm going to try. Never, ever look at the sun unless you've got the proper stuff. I mean, you can give us an email, uh, info at ukastronomy.org, and we can send you down the right route or if in doubt ask a local club to assist you and stuff like that. So there's loads of people to help out there. Uh, if you're local to Milton Keynes, which is where I'm based at the moment, uh, I'll be out looking hopefully from about six o'clock onwards till sunset. So if anyone wants to pop down, look on the website, it will say where we're going to be or just you know talk to your local club and go out and find out if they're going to be out looking. Then you've got a range of equipment you can look for and you've got the advice there.
3: Excellent. So what's next on the list, Russ?
6: Uh, Well, the next big thing is the the meteor shower. These big ones happen around the year and different parts of the year, just generally because of comets. I think there's a couple of asteroids as well which do it. What it is, is a a comet is is, a relatively small solar system body, and it orbits the sun. And it's the thing that plays a large part in, in the August shower. Although meteoroids look pretty spectacular, when they go through the sky, they can do They can look amazing, some of them. They are pretty much just bits of dust and particles that come from the, the decaying surface of comets, or an asteroid. When a comet gets closer to the sun, its surface starts getting hotter and hotter, and uh, I always like to say snow, because it is pretty much like snow, is inside it, it's just below the surface, and that turns to gas, which then escapes, and it breaks up the surface of the dusty nucleus. Which is the centre of the comet, pretty much, and uh, it blows the dust particles away from it, which is why you get a nice stream. When you, if you can, if you've seen pictures of comets, you can always say they have like a tail. Yeah, and quite often they have two. One tail is the way it's sort of moving, and the other one is where the sun is kind of blasting it off. So you have a couple of tails, and yeah, and these these form streams, of, a stream of particle around the orbit of the comet which, you know, the comets go round over and over and over around the same sort of orbit past the sun again and again, which then increases that sort of dust lane, as I call it. The larger the comet, the denser the stream is, or the dust lane. So there's there's loads within where we are, which is why we have quite a few throughout the year. There's one in December as well, which is fantastic. It's it's dark as well, which is always nice and cold. For some reason, us astronomers like dark, cold nights. (laughs) Everyone else is inside nice and warm. But yeah, so as the Earth orbits the sun, it then it will pass through these clouds dust particles and it collides with some of the meteorites and that creates the shooting stars the august ones is called the perseids and uh it's associated with the comet called swift tuttle and the name comes from its discoverers great thing about astronomy is even if you're an amateur if you discover something that's new Mm -hmm. you get to name it it's yours (laughs) not sure you can own it and land on it but generally if you find something in space you do get your name entitled to it or you can call it something Hockham doesn't really quite Nah, Let's call it hockey hockface or something. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, the name comes from its discoverers, and the, they were called Lewis Swift and Horace Parnell Tuttle. So you've got Swift Tuttle there, and it was in like 1862, so it's discovered a while ago. It goes around the sun pretty much every 133 years, so it's quite slow for us. It was last seen in '92, and I don't think me or you will get to see it again, not unless they invent some sort of special oil of Ulay that keeps regenerating cells till 2126 so we've got quite a while till it comes back so to create the amount of dust to make the perseid meteor shower actually happen and be as spectacular as it is it would have had to have gone round the sun a few hundred times to actually build up this dust lane so that's quite a long time it's been flying around why is it called the perseids meteor showers they usually radiate from a certain point in the sky so there's an area where they kind of come from which is a constellation called perseus so that's why it's the Perseid meteor shower. And it's almost like what I say, is if you put your hand up, with your palm facing you, that's kind of like how they'll be shooting where your fingers and thumbs are. So sort of all round like a spider. A lot of people say they burn through the sky, but I don't think if you actually Google it <laughs> or look it up properly, they don't really say it actually burns. It's been flying through space for quite a long time. It's probably going quite fast. We go around at about 30 kilometers per second, I think. So to actually then hit a piece of dust at that speed, it's going to actually brighten really, really, really considerably because of the amount of heat as it goes through our atmosphere. So that's why you get those light displays as it's flying around because normally a bit of dust just going into it, you wouldn't see anything. A small meteor will enter Earth's atmosphere. It will go from traveling through the vacuum of space, which is pretty much nothing, and suddenly it's getting compressed through air. It's hit something now, so it's got a bit of friction there. So moving through space is effortless. There's nothing going on. And typically, meteors can travel at tens of thousands of kilometers per hour plus then Earth traveling as well, hitting each other. The air in front of the meteor, or meteorite, it compresses incredibly quickly as it goes in. And uh, when a gas is compressed, its temperature rises, which then causes the meteor to heat up as well. So it's kind of like it's actually the air in front of it that heats up Mm -hmm. being compressed, which then kind of heats up the meteor. So really, it's almost the air doing it, which is quite strange. And that that causes the bit of dust to start to glow. So the compressed air will continue to burn it until generally nothing's left, which is why you see them sort of almost look as if they kind of burn a trail in the sky. I have read that the re-entry temperatures can reach about 1,650 degrees Celsius, which is... It's quite ridiculous. <laughs> it's quite a lot. So you can understand why a tiny bit of dust does suddenly burn that bright and amazing. And uh, occasionally you get a, a slightly larger lump rather than a bit of dust. And uh, they can actually look like they're on fire burning across the sky. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we call them fireballs. And if they land, then they're meteorites, I think, aren't they? Instead of meteors, they yeah. turn into meteorites. Yeah. And I was really lucky. In three years that I've been out, I saw one fireball and it was amazing. And it's quite... Sad to say that it wasn't really my finest moment. I just happened to be out in the field. I walked away from my scope for a wee. I was stood luckily alone in the field because as I was standing there, the whole field just lit up in like a green sort of glow. Like I thought a car had driven into the field. And then as I turned around, I looked up and I saw this fireball of like green bursting across the sky and it was lighting the whole field up and it was absolutely amazing. I've never seen anything like that before and it's been three years, which is why now wherever I go, I seem to find myself looking up, which is probably hazardous to my own health, I getting hit by a car or something, but it's just, you never know, do you? You never know. You look up and it could be there. You could see that one massive meteor fly across the sky burning up in the atmosphere.
3: So I'm assuming the green coloration of the fireball is to do with the type of gas.
6: Yeah, there is a thing on, uh, I've seen it on the internet, it shows you the different colors. And it means, like, yeah, what gas or what element is in it. Because you see it when you burn certain metals and things, don't you? Because they're all stony iron meteors, generally. Mm. So when they burn up, depending on what element's in there, they can glow a slightly different colour. I think there's, like, yellows, reds, greens. So, yeah, I haven't actually looked up what green means. So maybe I should have a look and find out what it was I saw burning. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, off off of my story, this year, is it going to be any good? The moon is kind of in the way, it is up, because if you have a full moon on the night, it will wash out the fainter ones and you won't see as many, which is why they always give you a range of, you know, they say, oh, it could be, you know, 50 to 100 they're like well why is that well if the moon's in the way or you know there might be haze or clouds and things like that so the moon's not too bad so you should see quite a few they peak on the 12th and the 13th of august which means that those nights are the when you're going to see the most that's when they're the most of sort of hitting us we're right in the middle of the dense part of the, the cloud so they're the best nights to go out and have a look and then from those dates back to the end of the month it kind of dwindles out so you've got the whole month really so if we get a clear sky one night we might be able to actually go out and have a look and see them how do you find them if you look in the sky to the east which is pretty much the opposite side to where the sun sets you should see a w in the sky it'll be slightly lopsided i think towards the left a bit but there's a w there and that's a constellation called cassiopeia i'm sure most people have got iphones now with it you know on their phones where you can just put it up to the sky and find it there and you'll see just below cassiopeia is the perseus constellation And it's roughly in between those two, which is where the meteors will be coming from. But they will be flying from that point. They can go right across the sky. They can go down, left, right. But that's generally the area you kind of want to be looking. So I always say to people, get a reclining chair, a cup of tea, a hot chocolate. Get the kids out in the garden or get fish and chips or something and go into a field. And just lie there for half an hour, an hour. You might see, you know, 80 to 120 an hour if you're lucky, but the most I've ever seen is around 60-odd. But to see 60 meteors flying through the sky, which are the bits of comet that have been burnt off by our sun and have, you know, hit Earth at that speed to burn up, to me, every one is just, it's amazing. Wow. Go out and have a look.
3: It kind of shows you what our atmosphere actually does, doesn't
6: it? Talk to NASA. (laughs) (laughs) What it does to their spaceships, let alone, you know, bits of rock that are tumbling down to us. Yeah. There is a trick to find where west and east is. So if you if you stand and put your right arm out towards where the sun's setting, so it's right straight to the right of you, and then put your left arm, again, right out to the left of you, the right arm should be looking at the west where the sun sets, and the left should be at the east. So you should be able to look to the east, and that will be roughly where it is. So your left-hand side. Brilliant. And then uh, if we come on to, in a minute, there's a couple of planets up. You've got Jupiter and Saturn. If you bring your arms together in front of you, that should be south and that will be roughly where saturn is awesome so that will lead you on to what's
3: happening in the sky now there's probably some smaller things going on as well
6: yeah they're they're the two big things as you can tell i got very excited and just chatted away about them because you know i love going out and seeing those things they're great but yeah there's there's always little things going on and uh I've got a little list. I did write a little list of what's happening in the sky in August. So we've covered the 12th and the 13th is when it's best to see the meteors. The 21st is the partial eclipse, which is always worth going out and to see. Even though it's not going to be as good as America, it's always worth having a look. But yeah, as I I mentioned, Jupiter and Saturn—they're both up at the moment. They are quite low in the sky, and we do just happen to be moving away from them in our orbit, so they're not at their best. But you can still get a great look because they're both going to disappear for a bit until next year because they're slowly, you know, they're slowly going down. So you've got. I'll go out now and have a quick look at them jupiter will be to the west so it's not too far from the setting sun so when the sun sets if you kind of look at i always say at a kind of a diagonal to the left there'll be a white spot there and that's jupiter uh there is later on the, i always use the moon as a kind of guide there's certain nights where the moon's close to the planets so i say look look at the moon and you'll see the planets there and there's a couple of them coming up so you've got jupiter to the west and then just to the left of that about south You've got Saturn. But as I said, they are low. If you're looking for a telescope, they might be a little bit blurry and things. They won't be as good as you you know, you know, might want them to be. But you can still go out and see Saturn's rings, Jupiter and its four moons, which you do see. You can see it through a telescope in a line. And they do move around the planet as well, overnight. So you can go out and see them moving and changing, which is always good. Now, moving on a little bit, if you're an early bird, which I'm definitely not, unless I've got work or a cup of coffee to get up to, uh, on the 16th of August around about 7 or 8 a.m., you might be able to, with a scope or some binoculars, see the moon move in front of a bright star. The bright star's in Taurus constellation. It's called, I call it Aldebaran, but it might be called something different, but that's how I like to pronounce it. And it's just really a big red star that's in Taurus. And it's kind of, it's weird because it's during the day. And there's not a lot you can do in astronomy during the day, really. But if you've got a pair of binoculars, if you have a look at the moon about 7 or 8 o'clock, you will see there's a slight star near the moon. And the moon will move slowly, in front of the star and make it disappear. I don't think we're going to get to see it come out the other side, because I think it would have set by then. But it does just show you can actually see our own moon moving through the sky as well, past the star. So I think, for me, that's quite a cool thing to see. And it's something you can do during the day, so you don't have to be out at night.
3: Just don't be calling it Alderaan.
6: That's a matter of mistakes I make with Star Wars and stuff. (laughs) It's (laughs) A-L-D-E-R-B-A-R-A-N. So it's close to it, but not quite.
3: Older Baran, uh, yeah. Older Baran, Older yeah. Older Baran, I would have said, but
6: yeah. Yeah, I call it Older Baran. <laughs> it's like Beetlejuice. It's Beetlejuice or Beetle Geese, they call it as well. But I like Beetlejuice because it's like the film, isn't it?
3: Yeah. I've fun. always known it as Beetlejuice. And then all of yeah. a sudden, where did that come from? Why do yeah. you call it that?
6: Yeah. Then if you're around on the 19th of August, again, you're going to have to get up early in the morning, probably around about five o'clock, maybe six. You will see the goddess of beauty in the sky, which is Venus. She'll be really, really bright and just near her, an easy way to find her. Not that you probably need to because she's she is really bright. It'll Be to the east again, roughly where the sun's coming up. The crescent moon will be there as well. So you can see the crescent moon and Venus up in the sky. So it will be a good point where you can actually find that planet. So then you've been able to see Jupiter, Saturn and Venus. So that's three of the planets already. we're only about halfway through the month so that's a great one to see now on the 25th of august jupiter and the moon will be quite close so if you couldn't find it before on the 25th go out have a look at where the moon is and you'll see a big white dot not too far from it and that is the gas giant jupiter it's a great time to spot it because it as i said it will be disappearing probably by the end of the month or so so we won't be able to see it anymore until next year so if you want to see it get out there now and have a look also the planet that i hate to say the name of because there's always a snigger <laughs> from someone so I tend to say Uranus now it is in Pisces the same night and it's a great time to see it because if the moon's near Jupiter it would have set and it's out the way so we love that when the moon's out the way astronomers love it because it means that It doesn't wash anything out so we can see galaxies nebula all the deep space sort of stuff which is what my my scope is what i got it for i wanted to see a galaxy so yeah you can actually see uranus there as well so it's in pisces and if you want to know exactly where it is it will be put into the facebook group that we've got there from our events page because that's what i try and do with pictures as well to help you find it so you can have a look there and see it something i can't understand is like right we can declassify a planet into a dwarf planet can't we
3: don't go down that road
6: (laughs) so surely can't we just rename this planet yeah because uh, although half of my school talk that i do does actually use uranus jokes Mm -hmm. to make the kids laugh so i'd have to rewrite it but uh, you just you just can't say it can you no even now how many times have i said it i still want to (laughs) laugh and i don't know why so yeah moving on anyway uh the 29th so towards the end of the month now Due to the moon's orbital period around Earth, we can often see it, it's up during the day sometimes. On this date, the 29th, get the kids out into the garden during the day and see if you can spot the first quarter moon in the sky. It does look, I love it in the day because it looks like something out of Star Wars, doesn't it? Or something. There's actually like a moon or a Death Star
1: yeah,
6: up yeah. in the sky during the day. <laughs> and it's great to see. So, yeah, you can do that during the day get some binoculars on it and then this one's probably more for sort of like the more specialist astronomer but you can use binoculars on the 31st so the last day there is an asteroid called neo or 3122 florence they always give them cool names apparently going to be bright enough for you to watch as it passes kind of through the star field and through the stars over a few nights time because they move quite slowly through and it's said that you can actually see it with binoculars so it's going from the constellation aquarius to delphinus which apparently i think is just a dolphin which is quite cool Mm mm-hmm Uh, And it's apparently it's going to be really bright and it's going to be a bright white dot and over a few nights it will appear to move. So you'll see it moving over a couple of nights through the stars so you can actually see an asteroid as well. So there's there's quite a few things to go out there and try and have a look at and I will put it on the, uh, the Facebook group and that sort of thing so that people can find it and where it's going. That's pretty much all the cool stuff this month other than, you know, the general galaxies and nebula and supernovas and all sorts of things that might be going on out there. Unfortunately, I think that's everything from me. So uh, I'll just say, if you want to be reminded of these things that we're doing, there's our website, www.ukastronomy.org, which has all the local events we're doing throughout the year and a few maybe camping trips that we might be doing. Uh, you can join the Facebook group where we also post our events page, which you can also like, which will let you know all these things that are happening a couple of days beforehand. And I believe now my wife set up a YouTube and a Twitter. So now you've got my voice on here. I think I now have to put my face out them more <laughs> which is just not a good thing let's be honest
3: <laughs> well Ross thanks for coming on the show today
6: to so be on the show and to listen to you guys I've, I've heard your show it's really 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 good and I'm honored to be here
3: if you're willing to we'd love to have you on on a a regular basis if that's all right with you
6: yeah yeah of course it is yeah as long as you're happy with my work (laughs) (laughs) yeah well this is my first podcast so yeah, it's kind of a bit weird sitting here with headphones on talking to a computer screen but i'm sure i'll get better at it
3: (laughs) you get used to it trust me
6: yeah (laughs) yeah yeah if you'd have me i'd love to i mean if it gets more people out looking up why not
3: awesome well thanks again ross and we'll speak to you again soon
6: Yep, clear skies
3: so that was ross hockham from uk astronomy group we now have a resident astronomer Nice. Yeah, his photograph will be going up on our All About Us page under the title Resident Astronomer. Ross gets really passionate about what he talks about. And, yeah, it's really worth going to the UK Astronomy Group page on Facebook. There's always stuff going on. Uh, Each month there's a a photographic uh, competition, Uh, and each month there's a different theme for the competition. And uh, this month it is Space Selfies so it's a selfie in a space related photograph there's been some really good ones Uh, my one that i submitted wasn't technically a selfie but it was on a timer (laughs) it was the photograph that i took at the mars yard at uh, the space center up in leicester Um, Mm -hmm. i thought it was a great picture um there's one guy uh, a guy called richie page i think his name is uh, He's one of the members of the group blew a lot of people away with his selfie because he has got a full arm tattoo of Yuri Gagarin. Wow, that's hardcore. Uh, I've actually put it on the TGP nominal page as well. I was hoping that the people at Yuri's Night would see it. I think they'd be blown away by it as well. Uh, it's really worth getting involved with the group. Uh, even if you're not from the UK, there are some people from the States actually part of the UK Astronomy Group. It's, everybody's just having fun, and that's what yeah. it's all about. There's also a monthly quiz that's just started. It's a space and science-related quiz, and it does encourage people to look stuff up. You don't necessarily have to know the information, but... If you've had the opportunity to look it up, it's inspired you to read into stuff, and that's Mm -hmm. really good. Plus, knowing where and
4: how to look things up like that, that's half the battle, too.
3: Mm Mm-hmm there's some really good people in the group there's always somebody there to answer your questions if you've got you know you're trying to take photographs with your telescope um, and things are not coming out as well as you, you wanted them to, there's always someone there that can point you in the right direction on how to get the best out of your camera and, and telescopes Mm-hmm. So that's really cool. As he mentioned there, they've got an events page and all kinds of stuff. They are a charity themselves, but they're also doing other stuff for charity. Uh, as he mentioned, they're raising money for this mobile observatory, which sounds great. Yep. Uh, you know that big um, telescope I showed you the pictures of that they had. Oh, yeah. That is the telescope they're going to be using in this mobile observatory. Nice. Um, and it just was—it was just given to them. Um, that one, people donated money oh, okay, okay. for it. Um, but there was another smaller ones, which were uh, great training telescopes that were just given to them i mean we're talking, awesome. talking 250 pounds worth of telescope
4: that yeah. is so cool
3: and they've got ones there that they've you know they can show people how to do different things and get kids involved in stuff um they've just been donated to what have not donated but money has been donated for them to buy some sunscopes mm-hmm. and things like that we were talking a little bit about what 's next after the observatory, but there 's still a long way to go money wise He said I think it was about right. fifteen hundred pounds they 've raised so far for the mobile observatory, and they 've got to raise something like six or seven thousand pounds Ooh. for it so that 's the the cost of the the van and you know what you need for the upkeep for the insurance and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But the next thing that he 's thinking about is one of those inflatable planetariums. Oh, yeah. Which would be a, a, a nice little add-on mm-hmm. for when they go do these outside events and things. But if it's bringing kids on board and getting them interested in um, astronomy, that's fantastic. Um, there was a post on their page today which got quite emotional about. A little kid said to his mum, can you read me a, a, a bedtime story? And she said, well, what book do you want me to read from? And it was one of these like Osborne book of astronomy and he said well can you tell me about the planets nice and I thought yeah I love that mm-hmm. it's such an early age he was about four I think Ah, if you can if you've got them hooked at that age hopefully you know maybe a future astronaut there or a future scientist hey it's got to start somewhere mhm it does hit you when you when you see stories like that um you do get quite emotional about that kind of stuff when you feel passionate about this realm anyway and to just to see you know that's a future generation right there um it's, it's really nice to see i didn't realize there was so much going on this month to be honest with you obviously we knew about the eclipse then you've got the meteor shower that's coming and and all the other bits and pieces. I, I really didn't realise there was so much happening in, in August. Um, obviously, if Ross comes back, it's not going to be as long as that each month because some months are going to yeah. be a bit, you know, a few gaps in between. Um, it sounds like December's going to be quite interesting because there's going to be another meteor shower and as the, the nights are longer, you're going to be able to see it a bit more clearly so looking forward to possibly seeing some fireballs. <laughs>
4: well, you got your little, you know, pinhole,
3: please. Yeah, well, at least for a colander, you can get multiple suns.
4: Yeah, but, you know, we got all 50 <laughs> states ready to be printed off on 3D printing. Because <laughs> we're America. <laughs>
3: .weebly.com That's SpamheadProductions I think we should start wrapping things up. Alright. I'd like to say a big thanks to Ross for coming on board and agreeing to come on board more often. I hope he enjoyed his time with us. And as usual John thanks for always being there for us.
4: Oh, not a problem. And if Ross wants to, you know, America, UK back and forth, oh, I'm game.
3: <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, thanks to everyone out there for listening into the show and we will speak to you all again real soon. Toodle. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. Be sure to visit tgpnominal.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode. Just look for the relevant tab on the menu. Let us know what you think of the show.
2: Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com
3: Because your input Is our output. Or you can use the social media icons at the top of the page that include Twitter and Facebook. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also Stitcher and TuneIn On Demand Radio. Don't forget to rate and review us. You can find links on all our podcast pages. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages? And don't forget to spread the word about us.
5: station this is houston acr thank you that concludes the event
4: and you're gonna put the damn toodles in aren't you possibly